Good to have you with us today at the Antioch campus of Blue Valley. Uh, it's a little cold today, not liking that at all. Uh, I, I talked to John about maybe getting the parking lot salted because uh, I was afraid it was going to snow, uh, but apparently it's not doing that, and I am ready for summer to return anytime it is convenient for summer to do so. All right, well, let's just get this right out of the way. Um, I'm older than a good chunk of you, not all of you, I won't point out, but I am older than a good chunk of you that are in this room right now, and so that means that I grew up in the 70s. I was an elementary school student in the 70s, and when I was an elementary school student in the 70s, I had appointment television at 7 o'clock on Friday night because it was at 7 o'clock on Friday night when the Donnie and Marie show came on, all right? Now, uh, you laugh. Uh, I, I hope that means you know who Donnie and Marie are. I was a little worried about this illustration to start because people are going to be going, what? I have no idea. But Donnie and Marie Osmond were a musical duo that had a cheesy variety show on Friday nights at 7 o'clock when I was growing up, and I loved, loved watching it. Now, I've got to just be fully transparent here. It, it, part of the reason I loved watching it is because uh, aside from Farrah Fawcett, my earliest childhood crush was Mar Marie Osmond. And so I'd tell mom and dad, it's just the music is so good, you know? And I would just be there, you know, mesmerized by Marie Osmond's beauty. Well, she uh, and her brother, um, for all the cheese that they're known for, it's, it's probably lost to history a little bit. They were a very popular musical duo in the 70s, had several hit records, and actually continued to perform together in Las Vegas for over a decade. That completed just right before the pandemic started. So uh, they've been around, and it'd be easy to look at them and say that they are the OGs of brother-sister musical duos, but that would be wrong because today we come to the, uh, the originals when it comes to brother-sister music duos. Who am I speaking of? I'm speaking of Moses and his sister Miriam. Not Donnie and Marie, but they've got some good stuff. You'll find their song that they are known for in Exodus chapter 15, so why don't you open your Bibles there. Last week we spent some time reflecting on the greatest miracle in the Bible outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, at least if you consider the amount of scriptural real estate that is given to its telling and retelling and celebrating, that miracle is the crossing of the Red Sea miraculously by the Jewish people and God's destruction of the Egyptian armies as they chased them into the sea, bringing the water back on them. In reality, in reality, that event sealed the redemption for Israel. It was really their moment of salvation. Everything up until that point had been threatened by the continued existence of the Egyptian army, but when the waters came back on them, they knew that their redemption had been complete. There would be challenges ahead. We'll look at some of those challenges next week. But that moment, that moment realizing that, let's just put it in our language, they had been saved was a moment of celebration, and they did it in a way that is customary for ancient peoples in general and the Israelites in particular. They did it through song or poem. Here's an interesting thing to think about. Moses, who is generally credited by tradition, and I think it's probably the best guess out there as having written the first five books of the Bible, 
wrote those books, especially the book of Genesis, by pulling, we think, songs that were familiar to the Jewish people and then filling in the backstory of them. That's the reason you have two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1, I believe, is a poetic retelling, a, a retelling in song where the people would rehearse that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and Exodus chap- or Genesis chapter 2 fills in the backstory. That's when you get down to the details of Adam and Eve. The same kind of thing, I think, is happening here. Moses is preserving a song created in the moment that celebrates the destruction of the Egyptians. And later on, later on, the people of Israel would need to have the backstory to it. And so he is giving the backstory to it in the retelling of the event through the Red Sea. So this is something probably, as time went on, deeply ingrained in the minds of the Jewish people. And I'm going to, excuse me, read, not sing, I'm going to read all of Exodus 15 and stop periodically to give you some landmarks to look at. Here's what I found out about me. If I've got some handles to put around a larger passage of Scripture, it makes it easier for me to understand what I'm supposed to do with it. And so that's what I'm going to be doing for you, if that's okay. We're going to go through this whole thing, and I'm going to give you some handles to look at so that we can then spend the rest of our time uh, really figuring out what to do with it. So here's what we're going to do first. We're going to read what functions, let's put it in our language, what functions as the first verse of the song that Moses and later Miriam will sing. And I'll show you how that works. So look please at uh, verse 1 of Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown in the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The flood covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Here's what I want you to know first. You see that repetition that took place in that verse where he says twice your right hand and your right hand? That signals the end of what we'll call the first verse, all right? And you're going to see that repetition stopping each verse as we go all the way through. But for right now, let's think what the first verse of this song is about. If you pay very close attention, it's pretty easy to figure out. I want you to go back and I want you to see all of the times the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, occurs in the verses we just read. It happens in verse 1. It happens in verse 2. It happens twice in verse 3. In verse 4, it doesn't happen. verse 5, it doesn't happen. But in verse 6, again, it happens twice. So what's the first verse of the song about? It's really important, I think, to say who is the first verse of the song about. And the who of verse 1 is the Lord. So who is answered there? The song is about the Lord. And then the second verse starts. Look at verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You, 
blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And then note the repetition here. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So there's a repetition letting us know the verse has stopped. So what's verse 2 about? It's about what the Lord's just done. It's what the Lord has done in defeating the Egyptians and bringing the Jews through the sea. Now we go to verse 3 of the song. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moaz. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. And here's the repetition. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till your people pass by whom you've purchased. So that's the end of the third verse. And what's the third verse about? We're not going to talk about it much here. But we're going to talk about it in depth in just a little bit. But it's about what they knew that God would do. All of the people groups that are mentioned are people groups who are in the promised land, where they're not yet. They've just come through the sea. They are in the wilderness. They are not yet in the promised land. But it's talking about the people groups in the promised land. So this is a focus on what the Lord will do. Now, I grew up uh, in a church that was fairly traditional. And at the end of some of the big hymns, at the end of them, we would go, Amen. Who grew up in a church like that? All right? A few of y'all. All All right? What I'm about to read to you is the Amen. Okay? It's a summary of everything that they have just sung about. Starts in verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the, uh, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which you have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And so that's the amen that ends it. But remember I said this is a musical duo. And the duo part of this kicks in in verse 20. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, just real quick. Moses, Moses was the brother of Aaron. Miriam is the sister of Aaron. Let's just run our biology class there. That makes Miriam also the brother of Moses. Miriam the prophetess. What did I say? She's sister. You knew what I meant, but thank you for your grace. The sister of Aaron took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out with her with their tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. What are they doing? They are singing the song that Moses has just sung. And probably, probably what is going on is you have what would be called kind of an antiphonal singing going on. Where the men are singing and the women are singing. And they're singing the same song. Because the words that are recorded of Miriam as having sung are also the first words of the song of Moses back in verse 1. So they're singing the same song. A couple of things here. First of all, this is speculation, so you can't take this to the bank. But let's go back and remember the earliest event that we have record on in Moses' life. Moses was preserved from the decree of death 
that had been announced for all of the Hebrew boys by his mother creating a basket and placing him in the reeds of the Nile. And he was watched over by his sister. It's very likely that this is the same sister, the same sister who watched over Moses, the same sister who was gifted with the ingenuity when Pharaoh's daughter found Moses to run to her and connect her with Moses' biological mom, her mom, so that they could remain a presence in their lives together. So that's just something interesting to think about the connection that Moses and Miriam might have had. But you also see that she's called a prophetess. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean she's telling the future? No. A prophetess in the Old Testament is the same thing as a prophet in the Old Testament. They are announcing a word from the Lord. And you see that happening. People, men and women, prophesying, announcing a word from the Lord, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New. So she is uh, doing something that we see happen all the way through the Bible. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of women prophesying, giving a word from the Lord. So that's just kind of the story of everything together. We have seen the song come together. And I hope with those patterns uh, established for you, those handles put on the passage of Scripture for you, that it can help you understand really largely what God is wanting to say to us in our verses today. And to begin that exercise, I want you to think right now about what your favorite song of faith is. All right, what, what hymn, what chorus, what Christian song is your absolute favorite? For me, right now, and it's hard to pick, but for me right now and for several years... My favorite uh, song of faith is Glorious Day, the version by Casting Crowns, which took an old hymn and put it to new music. And if you were to say, why is that your favorite? I, I would be foolish to deny that the, the, mu the music itself is moving to me. I, because, and that's important because uh, the lyrics were hidden by what, to my modern ears, was completely ridiculous music in the old hymn. I mean, it sounded a little bit like a song you'd hear at the circus from my ears uh, when we were trying to sing this. I never paid any attention to the lyrics, but when they put music to it that helped my modern ears, I was able to be swept away by the message. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, glorious day. And so the words really are what move me. And if I could summarize what the song then is about, I would simply say to you that Glorious Day is telling me who God is, what he's done, what he's going to do. Who God is, what he's done, what he's going to do, which are the same themes that show up in Exodus 15. So as we think about how these people in this undeniably huge moment in their lives were able to pour accelerant on the celebration and have a great experience of victory. We just need to look at what they sung. We need to look at what they remembered as they were singing this song. And as we do that, we see that we can also have victory for the same reasons. Here's the first thing we see in their song and that can encourage us. We see in this song that we have victory because of who God is. Who God is. Let's revisit 
the first verse of the song that I've said is found in verses 1 through 6. And I want you to just look at that and see how many times simple declarations are being made of the Lord. Verse 2, we see the Lord is my strength and my song. We see that this is my God. Verse 3, the entire thing is a declaration about God. Verse 6, the entire thing is a declaration about God. My uh, point is that the first verse of the song is simply a reflection on who God is. But just below the surface of that, I want you to see that the reflections on who God is are based, listen, on a current experience in their lives. In other words, they weren't basing their present experience of victory in God based on something that he had done in the long ago past. Theirs was a current experience with God, which leads me, prompts me to have us ask this question of ourselves. How current is my experience with God? Now, I get that asking that question may not seem fair because Israel's current experience with God just so happened to be the greatest miracle in the Old Testament. But it's still a fair question to ask because even in the absence of some great miracle in our lives, we all, don't we, need something current about God in our lives to celebrate in order to realize the victory that we have in Him right now. And far too many, I'm afraid, have no current experience with God. When we talk about His presence in our lives, far too often we are talking in the past tense. So how current is your experience with God? Let's go back to the childhood memory that I uh, shared starting the service, uh, that of watching Donnie and Marie when I was growing up. That show is 45 years old. Now, let's say you and I were having a talk about life, and I said, you know, one of my real hobbies, one of my real passion is staying current on what people are consuming on television. And you think, well, I'm in the, I'm in the presence of an expert. Let me just ask this expert. What's your favorite show? What if I said to you, Donnie and Marie? Here's what you would conclude about me. You would conclude about me that once, a long time ago, I watched television. But you would also conclude, he ain't watching television now. So, what if I were to ask you what God is up to in your life right now? And you begin to tell me something that's 45 years old. Or a year old or a decade old. Here's what I would assume if that's what you were giving as an answer to the question, what has God up to right now? I would assume that God had been at work in your life, but that he's not at work in your life right now. Israel was celebrating who God was for them then, not who he had been. So again, I ask, how current is your experience with God? Perhaps a better question is this. How do I keep my experience with God current? I cannot stress for you enough that if you are not carving out regular, and we do not say this often enough, if you're not carving out regular and deep time with the Lord, 
and not flybys as you're getting something religious out of your way as you're going on with your day. If that's missing in your life, your experience with God will begin to grow stale very, very quickly. Listen, you cannot microwave a deep and rich experience with God. You need just a small handful of tools. You need a Bible, and you need God's people, and you need time. And you say, well, that's the deal breaker. I just have no time. Okay, I'll believe you if you let me look at your screen report from this past week. All of us have the time. But if we don't have the priority, our experience with God will not be current. And we need to be done with accepting from one another a testimony as something God did a long time ago. All right? So we have victory because of God being real and present right now. But this song also says we have victory because of what God has done. And you might be saying, well, now, wait a minute, Derek. You just talked at length about why we shouldn't live in the past with God. Not really. What I talked at length about is that you shouldn't only live in the past with God. Our lives should be current and vibrant now, but that doesn't mean that we cannot have an experience of victory and great joy by reflecting on past experience with God, on what He has done for us in our past. And that is essentially what is taking place here, even though the past is very recent, in our song. Look at verse 8 again. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I'll divide the spoil, my desire have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand will destroy them, but you blew your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. What are they reflecting on? Well, they're reflecting on the crossing of the sea, which for them would be a salvation experience. They were reflecting on their salvation experience. So let's go through another little exercise here this morning. Let's, let's think about the moment when we gave our lives to Jesus. Now, I'm not asking you to think about a specific date at all. Now, I may not be able to remember the date, but I want you to think back on the event, which you should be able to remember. Who was with you? I mean, think about who was with you. Was it mom and dad or a friend or... A pastor, who is with you? And then here are two things that I think are very important to remember. What do you remember thinking about yourself in that event? And what do you remember wanting to do? What do you remember thinking about yourself? What do you remember wanting to do? I, I remember really coming to grips for the first time about myself that I was a sinner who had been separated from God by my sin. I had grown up by anybody's standards as a good boy. I hadn't been in any kind of trouble and didn't get into any kind of trouble, believe it or not. I, I was good by the world's standards, but I was sinful, and it separated from God. That's what, I remember, that's what I remember coming to grips with about myself, and I remember wanting more than anything to be made right with God through Jesus. That's, that's what happens when I think back through my experience of salvation, it brings a smile to my face because it, it blows me away when I think about the moment 
that Jesus overwhelmed my sin with his grace and saved me. And it's that feeling, it's that feeling right there that was causing the Jews to break out in song at Moses and Miriam's leadership. Look at verse 11. Then they said to Moses, excuse me, it would be helpful if I was in the right chapter. Verse 11, who is like you, Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious, deeds and doing wonders? This is what they are saying about God in light of the salvation that he has just given them. They were having a present experience of worship by looking back on their salvation from the Egyptians. And that's what God wants us to experience. He never wants us to go ho-hum about our salvation. He always wants that experience when we reflect back on it to bring us to a present moment of worship. And when I think of what God did to save me, it gives me victory in my circumstances now because I see God's already done the biggest thing that he could ever do in redeeming me. That's what salvation is. But it goes beyond our salvation, as ultimate as it is. It also happens when we take a moment to see his hand in the people that he's brought into our lives, family and friends and church family. It happens when I look back on experiences, especially unpleasant experiences, even tragic experiences, and see his hand in making me into who I am today in the midst of that. And if I still can't figure out what he is up to, I can reflect back in those moments and know without a doubt that he was with me through them. To quote a psalmist, seeing how his rod and his staff comforted me. That's what I mean when I say that we have victory now when we look back on what God has done in shepherding us through our lives and bringing us salvation. And here's the last bit of the song that can help us as we see it helping them. We have victory because of what God will do. What God will do. We've been looking back at at who God was what he has done for us we're looking at who he is now and now we are looking to the future and the hope that we have in it and here's where we see that go back to verse 15 again the peoples have heard they tremble pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed trembling seizes the leaders of Moaz all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm there still is a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till your people pass by whom you have purchased. All of those people groups are in the promised land. Now let's make sure that we've got the timeline right. They've come out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. And they'll be in the wilderness longer than they could ever imagine for a long time. The conquest of Canaan is in the far distant future. But did you notice how they're talking about it as if it had already happened? talking about it as if it had already happened and the reason they could speak with that much confidence is because of what God was doing in their lives right now and what God had done in their past they were thinking as a certainty about what would transpire in the promised land because of the experience that they were having with God right now and what he had done for them in their past this is something that we must learn in our own lives. We must 
learn as we have experienced the working of God now and as we look at how he has worked in, in our lives in the past, as we consider an unknown future, that we have in front of us a future that is held in the hands of the God who rescued us from sin and who is present with us in our lives right now. And too often, too often, we'll do the hard work of remembering what God did to save us and shepherd us through difficult times, and we'll be celebrating what God has said to us now, and we will hold tight-fistedly our future because we and we alone control that, and that's not true. The only way that you can have any kind of hope for the future is to reflect on who God is and what he's done for you. Here's why I know that. Every one of us are going to die. Every single one of us. You may have the best life imaginable, but at the end of it all, you will die. Now, when I was a young pastor, I'd done funerals and been with people at the moment of death. So I understood the reality of death. I knew that death was real. But like most younger folks, I was able to live in denial about it being real for me. I knew people died, but I really never gave any thought about me dying. Then I turned 50. And suddenly I began to realize, while I anticipated living a, a good long while, I'd come from long-lived people, the clock was winding down. I understood that I'm not old, but that I was getting older. And the clock was winding down, and because I have done what I have done for a living, I understood that there will come a day when I will be the one in the bed that others are gathered around. So will you. So will you. And I found myself wondering, how do people who are chronologically, statistically closer to that than I am function? And I have learned by watching them and seeing this grow in my life that they do it simply by remembering the salvation that God brought to them and remembering that if a God can do that, redeem me from my sin, be present in my life right now, the victory that I have in him at death is certain. Where is the sting of death? It has been taken out by Jesus on the cross. And so those thoughts don't have a debilitating effect on me anymore because I recognize that when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the thing that has been true all my life will be true of me in spades then. I, I will fear no evil for he is with me. His rod and his staff comfort me. My present experience of him and his past actions on my behalf give me that kind of confidence. And that is what the Jews are experiencing in the last verse of this song. They know that God will be with them in the promised land because he has been with them right now and in, for them, their recent past. We can have victory in our lives regardless of our circumstances when we understand who God is, when we understand what he's done, and when we understand what he will do. All right? So what do we do with that? Well, first things first, if you've never surrendered yourself to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, all that we have talked about belonging to God this morning is only possible if you do. If you've never come to a point in your life 
where you realized as I did as a boy that you may be great, a good person, everybody's favorite, but you're a sinner who's been separated from God by your sin. If you've never come to that realization and never wanted more than anything else in the world to be made right with God through Jesus Christ, that's your first step this morning in order to experience the victory that we are talking about today. But if you have the most important thing uh, uh, in your life, the salvation experience with Jesus, then what you have to do is commit to keep that experience fresh. Commit to devoted, deep time with him regularly. No more flybys. No more trying to, to squeeze him in to your real life of kids and work and schedules and self-care. Take your Bible, carve out quiet space, and talk to him. Pray as you read it. Jot some things down in a journal each day about what he's done and what he's said to you. Memorize his words so you can take it with you wherever you go. And at this stage in my life, take it with you when you wake up at 2 and can't go back to sleep till 4. I lay there and I start going over my verses, thinking, well, maybe God will put me to sleep with his word. He never does. Apparently he thinks I need the memorization work. But that's what I do. That's what we should do. Because the thing is, folks, if this is all you've got, if you're just here on Sunday morning to try to get a jolt for the week, you are so underutilizing your faith in Jesus. Jesus wants to be active and real and present in the nooks and crannies of your everyday life so that you can live life with victory. I don't mean in, in, a, in a sense where everything is suddenly okay. I'm not talking about that, but I'm just saying live in a settled peace. Live with a settled joy in your life so that your joy can overwhelm your circumstances rather than your circumstances overwhelm your joy. We can do that if we constantly work at remembering who God is, what he's done, and what he will do. Let's pray.